So is it even still possible to be a Hegelian today? Or is it not deeply old-fashioned or counter-revolutionary in terms of that time? That's a good question, because something interesting happened in the last, I would say, 20, maximum 30 years. Till that time, 20, 30 years ago, to be a Hegelian meant either you are a conservative, this image of Hegel as almost proto-fascist theorist of a corporate state against egalitarian democracy and liberal disorder, or we had extreme left Hegelians who focused just on negativity and read it as a kind of a philosophical name for social unrest, uh, revolution, or whatever. But the interesting thing of the last 20, 30 years is that another Hegel exploded and predominates today. Let's call him a liberal Hegel. There are two features by which one can immediately recognize this Hegel. One is the accent focus on anerkennung, recognition, as if the whole Hegel's social political thought focuses on a free society of mutual recognition. We yes, know that. Well. Fukuyama, Fukuyama, or Judas Butler in this. Yeah. yeah, precisely. And I like it very much. She would have killed you for this, and that's why I am on your side, that you brought the two together, <laughs> Fukuyama Butler, no? And no. we can talk about it, why that, this doesn't work. The second feature is, you can clearly see it, although they deny it, in Robert Pippin, Pippin and, uh, uh, and Brandon, uh, uh, this idea that Hegel should be read as a kind of a general logic of argumentative discourse. They try to neutralize or ignore the ontological claims of Hegel. For example, they read Hegel's logic not as a pure abstract, let's call it ontology, but as a kind of a general description of all possible argumentative modes. And uh, I think that if we want to save Hegel's legacy, truly, we should critically confront precisely this liberal Hegel. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Fukuyama, because for me, Fukuyama is one in the series of, I call them ironically, not yet there, noch nicht dort Hegelians. By this, I mean the following. They see Hegel as the great one, blah, blah, but they claim Hegel wasn't fully aware of what he is doing. He misunderstood himself. The first big model is not so much Marx as uh, the young Georg Lukacs. For him, what Hegel called uh, absolute guys, absolute spirit, or thus absolute, is just an alienated, fetishized, image of proletariat working class as the subject object of history. What Hegel conceptualized as the reconciliation in the medium of spirit will effectively happen with the proletarian revolution. Then we have Fukuyama, as you mentioned. For him, Hegel just came too early. 
It's not Hegel's vision of the state as described in his uh, rechtsphilosophy, philosophy of right. It's today's today's, uh, global capitalist liberal democracy that is it. And interestingly enough, I developed this in my book on Hegel and the wired brain. I think that many of today's, how should I call them, wired brain neognostics who think that with this prospect of our brains directly linked to computers, and then through computers we can directly communicate, I can read your mind, you my mind, that a kind of collective self-consciousness will emerge, which will finally realize Hegel's unity of subject and object. So it's only today with today's technology that what Hegel aimed at becomes possible. I think that we should radically oppose this. And now, of course, I will immediately give you the word back. No, no, the no, problem, no, no. of course, is if we disclaim or reject these versions, what remains of Hegel? I mean, can Hegel still be thought as actual? And my entire effort for 30 years is to prove that he can even against Marx. The more and more I think about Hegel, the more I think that what we have to do today is to, you know, this metaphor of Marx, Hegel should be turned around from his head to his legs, to the uh, actual foundation of social life and so on and so on. I think what we should do is to return from Marx to Hegel again. And especially now, I know some Marxists will hate me for this. I especially reject Marxist thesis 11. You know, philosophers only interpreted the world, the time is also to change it. Shouldn't our thesis 11 today be? Maybe in the 20th century, we tried a little bit too quickly to change reality. The time has come with all the confusion today, social problems, ecological problems, to step back and to interpret the world again in a new way. Mm-hmm. It fits perfectly to my, to my next question, because yeah. originally I suggested Immer Erger mit Hegel, the trouble with Hegel as a title for our talk. Hegel is a kind of a philosophical corpse. I would propose that is constantly being buried. Can I interrupt you? I love this question. Sorry, you know why? Because uh, it's exactly the same problem. You are right. As with, you know, Hitchcock's film, uh, The Trouble with Harry, which in Germany is translated Immer Erger mit Harry. What's the problem there? How to get rid of a guy of his corpse? They worry it again and again, it doesn't work. Isn't this the entire history of the last 200, a little bit less, years of philosophy? From Jung, Hegelianer, Marx, Feuerbach, they try to bury Hegel. Every philosopher, all, all philosophy of the last 200 years are versions to reject Hegel. Okay, either you claim Hegel is a total deadlock, stupid, irrelevant, or in a more friendly way, but to leave Hegel behind. Hegel is a living dead. No, he doesn't want to remain buried there. So now now, now, uh, uh, the title is Happy Birthday Hegel, which I think is fine too, but but anniversaries are always good 
opportunities to bury someone again for a long period of time, if not forever. But Hegel is more alive for you than ever. Or let's put it this way. He's a kind of a, we talked about this, yes. a kind of a philosophical zombie who cannot die. But one of his revenants, you say, repeater is the French philosopher Jacques Lacan. And in your, your last books, you always said that we need Lacan to keep Hegel alive. Is this still your position that we need Lacan as a repeater of of Hegel to keep him alive? Not so much repeaters. Uh, I am here, I, in an interview that I recently gave, I think I draw a nice parallel between this formula, mine, Hegel avec Lacan, Hegel with Lacan, and Jacques Lacan's thesis, which is already in a different way, developed by Adorno and Horkheimer in their the dialectic der Aufklärung, uh, Kant avec Sartre. Mm -hmm. The idea that Saad is the truth of Kant, that Saad's ethics of unconditional jouissance, enjoyment, is the truth of Kant's pure ethics of duty for the sake of duty. But I think this holds, but in a more complex way. In this case, Adorno, Horkheimer, and Lacan, the thesis is not Kant was really a sadist, a sadist. This is simple thesis of many ordinary people that beneath Kantian radical ethics is a kind of a sadism. You always fail, you are always guilty because you never can live up to your ethics. No, uh, Lacan's point is much more precise. It's not so much that Kant is a sadist, it's that Saad is a Kantian. The, the only way to grasp the, the Saad's ethics of unconditional enjoyment is to read it as something that fully fits Kantian ethics. Because it's enjoyment for the sake of enjoyment. It's a kind of a pure ethical pressure to enjoy, which can be even very pa painful, and so on. So, in the same way, I think Hegel avec Lacan doesn't mean what some readers did at a very high level, I admire them. They were popular. I read them when I was younger. Habermas, in I still think his best book, uh, Erkenntnis und Interesse, and Helmut Dahmer, Libido und Gesellschaft, to claim that the only perfect actual process that we have, which fits Hegelian dialectics of alienation, and then Versöhnung, reconciliation when you, where you recognize yourself in the alienated substance, is the psychoanalytic process. You get symptoms, psychic events, which you simply experience as a, as a äußere Störung, as an external intrusion. Through the analysis, you recognize in all these strange things, perversions, the innermost of your own uh, desires. <coughs> so I politely, in a very correct way, because I admire these authors, I don't think this is the right formula. I think that what Hegel aims at with his idea of reconciliation is not that, to put it in slightly simplified vulgar terms, that the subject should swallow it's otherness, you know, it's not out there, it's really my work. No, you should precisely reconcile yourself with 
otherness as constitutive of your own being. Verzöhnung in Hegel means precisely verzöhnung to reconcile yourself with the gap, with alienation, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, and just to finish, this type of Hegel for me is actual. Why? Just the last element, then I give you the word of what. Maybe today I admire him. I mean, it's a tremendous book. Uh, Robert Brandon's uh, 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 The Spirit of Trust, which is the version, the ultimate version maybe of close reading of Phenomenology des Geistes, Phenomenology of Spirit, as pointing towards a utopian future where we will all be recognizing each other, the society of reconciliation and so on. And for him, here is that I, in very simplified terms, disagree with Brandon. For him, uh, Hegel's ultimate motive is the spirit of trust. Even if things go wrong, we encounter evil, terrible things, and so on, alienation, blah, blah. We should trust the spirit that somehow all this will retroactively function as an element of, in some teleological historical process of a harmonious totality. I think that if there is something which really characterizes Hegel, is it not the exact opposite, the spirit of distrust? That is to say, if there is a zero level of Hegel's procedure, it is. You take some historical process or idea, which can be very noble, very good, with excellent intentions you can be sure that it will somehow turn wrong. That's why I think retroactively, we should read in a Hegelian way the 20th century. The second half of 19th century was, at least in Europe, not outside Europe, uh, the time of relative gradual progress. Uh, in Germany, Bismarck introduced uh, healthcare, retirement plans, and so on. Women got the right to vote. Slow progress. But then came the shock of First World War. This was much greater shock than Second World War. We just, we just repeated First World War. This would have interested Hegel. How is it that that continuous progress exploded into this? Or another example, communism. It began as a noble attempt of radical emancipation. It ended with Comrade Stalin and so on, you know. That, and so what's Hegel's point here? Here I again, in a friendly way, disagree with Judith Butler. Hegel's point is not we made a mistake there. Yes, there is another option to do it better, but you have to go through this mistake. Hegel's point is not we shouldn't be egotists who humiliate and dominate others. We should live in mutual recognition. No, Hegel's point is exactly the opposite one. Yes, we should strive at mutual recognition, but the only way to arrive at it is through extreme terror and so on and so on. You see, just one example and then I stop. Here you see what Hegel really aimed at. It's unique in his reading of French Revolution. We have, on the one hand, liberals, Kant and so on, 
who are, if I may put it like this, for 1789 against 93. The first phase was good, just bourgeois freedom. Ah, Jacobins, bad, terror. No? But, uh, and then you have outright conservatives who claim it was failed from the beginning. Hedy's position is much more tragic. There never was a choice to, to get the freedom without the excess of terror. Hegel always insisted, 93 was a necessary consequence of, of, of 89, of the first phase of the revolution, and the only way to concrete freedom is through that horror. You cannot make a choice, either abstract terror or concrete society of Anerkennung and so on. You have to go through the terror to arrive at that point. So that the actual result at the end, a better bourgeois society, arrives only through terror. And Versenung means you have to go through that zero point. You have to accept the negativity. Yes? Maybe, maybe something similar is happening at the, at the moment. My next question would be that you said in an interview some time ago that not even Francis Fukuyama, Hegel's most loyal student, is no longer a Fukuyamist because the end of history has not happened after all. In your opinion, Hegel was not a Hegelian just as Marx was not a Marxist. So again, you did not answer my, my first question, to be honest. How can one be a Hegelian today if not even Hegel himself was one during his lifetime? Uh, to be a Hegelian today, I think, is just to openly confront these deadlocks without any quick idea at the maybe later happy ending and so on and so on. To be a Hegelian is not to just make fun of Fukuyama. Fukuyama did grasp the tendency of a certain moment, Clinton's, Bill Clinton's happy 90s, where it really looked as if Liberal capitalism has won, and so on, and so on. Then things began to happen. For me, that's the true spiritual meaning of September 11th. It meant, no, we are not at the end of history. History returned. <laughs> Liberal democracy is not the universal formula, so that, as Fukuyama somewhere put it, we can only... That the battle is already won. It's only a long, boring process. You have local resistances. Will it work here, there, and so on, and so on? No. If there is another very Marxist Freudian here, I am for them, motive of Hegel is that mistakes are always symptomatic. Mistakes are not just secondary mistakes that maybe we could have avoided, you know. Mistakes happen necessarily, in the same way as Freud said that psychopathological phenomena are the key to understanding our normal psychic life. In the same way that Marx said to understand crisis is the only way to understand normal functioning of capitalism. That's the formula, that's the formula of Hegel. So I think Hegel would have loved to do this, to take liberal democracy, Fukuyama, as a utopian moment, and then to demonstrate why it had to go wrong, economically, politically, and so on and so on. So you, you, you see, uh, now I will say another central point. And here, although I appreciate him, uh, how do you pronounce him? 
Vivek, the great biographer today of Hegel, no? Yeah, exactly, Vivek. Yeah, yeah. sick, I, sick I like to read him, I appreciate him very much. But my problem with him is that he still reads Hegel as announcing some more egalitarian, democratic future, and so on and so on. Hegel never does this. That's why I also don't agree with Habermas's critique of Adorno Horkheimer. I'm not getting confused. I will return to Hegel. You know, Habermas's basic reproach is that Adorno and Horkheimer just criticize the liberal bourgeois freedoms, but without any positive normative model. That there is a lack of positive normativity there. But I think this is Hegel. Hegel, when he critically analyzed a certain society, he doesn't impose the measures of some ideal society of recognition. No, he just measures a society by the measure of its own norms and sees a gap. That's why. I think he's much more destructive as people like Klaus Vivek, for example, yeah. think he is. He's not yeah. that much positive. Yeah. You know, Hegel, I take very seriously Hegel, who in, I think it's forward, I'm not sure, of his des Rechts, you know, everybody quotes this passage, but nobody mm. thinks mm. about it. You know, the all of Minerva takes of off in the of Robert Tippin drew my attention to this. I don't generally agree with him, but here he was onto something. You know, he gives a certain vision of social order in his Rechtsphilosophie, philosophy of right, Hegel. But wait a minute. He himself says in the introduction that philosophy comes, like our debate here, too spät always with the delay, you know, that it only can uh, describe a certain form of life, Gestalt, uh, when this form of life is already disintegrating. But wait a minute, either Hegel was a total idiot, which he wasn't, or he knew very well that this holds also for the image of society that he presents in his Rechtsphilosophie. This is not Hegel's idea of a future emancipated society. He describes there a certain conceptual, a little bit utopian model of how society at that point, before full capitalism developed, could have developed its inner form. But Hegel, at some point, knew it very well that the real, if he can describe its notional structure, it's time, it's over. And Hegel was aware of it. Don't forget that, if I'm correct, I think the last text that Hegel's, Hegel published was his analysis of the English Reform Bill, which makes a move towards universal generalized democracy. And Hegel was horrified by it. But he saw that we are entering a new epoch, and this is why I think Hegel is the most open philosopher that you can imagine. Hegel always emphasized, we cannot talk about the future. It's not the task of philosophy to describe the ideal of what is to be done. Wait a minute, we have to be careful here. It doesn't mean that we are simply caught into our present. What Hegel was aware, and here I'm on Hegel's side against Marx, is that 
each epoch is not just what it is. Each historical epoch includes, implies its own utopian model. And when we criticize a certain social form, we should always ask ourselves to what extent the positive model that we want to replace the existing society with is itself still branded, marked by this society. For example, I am ready to develop, as I did in some of my books, that Marx's vision of capitalism is, in a way, capitalism without capital. Marx wants to retain this capitalist dynamics of, you know, always expanded reproduction and so on, just without capital. The problem with Marx is not that he was too utopian. <laughs> he remained within the general uh, frame of, of capitalism. Just wanted, again, a capitalism without its excess. And so uh, Hegel is not saying forget about the future. Hegel is just saying let's be really open towards future. Let's accept that all our ideas about future will necessarily turn into a catastrophe. Wrong? And then maybe through going through this painful point, something new will emerge. That's why at the end of Hegel, we get you know beautiful words from the last page of Phen Phenomenology of Spirit. Calvary des Geistes. That's for him history. It's not a happy progress towards some uh, future and so on and so on. And uh, for this reason, we need Hegel today. Again, 20th century was the century of things turning wrong. It goes even now. We thought we are masters of nature. Now, <laughs> a virus, which is the most stupid thing you can imagine, just a biochemical, not even bio, more chemical mechanism of self-reproduction presence as all. That would have, you know, the chapter in Hegel on, in Phenomenology of Spirit on uh, Aufklärung, Enlightenment against Superstition. Isn't this going today again with modernity against new religious fundamentalisms and so on and so on. It's Hegel's time today. We live in a time of Hegelian crazy reversals. And again, what I like in the Hegelian approach is that it's a kind of a critique without a positive model. Hegel doesn't imply an ideal society of full recognition. He nowhere says this. Okay. Philosophy of right. Two things. First, as I already said, at the end of philosophy of right, uh, 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 we get, never forget, you know what we get at the end? Not a happy, bürgerliche, bourgeois society, but the necessity of war. Why we need war, why society needs war through uh, as a kind of ethical purification to reproduce itself. And again, second thing he knew, he's describing a mode of life which is already disintegrating and so on and so on. I think that today, especially when we live in a time of what my Marxist friend Frederick Jameson calls uh, the lack of cognitive mapping. We don't even have a general frame to locate what is going on today. What is happening in China, in China today? Is this a strange version of communism? Is this simply a new form of 
totalitarian capitalism or what, we are lacking this. That's why, again, we need Hegel more than ever. And maybe maybe you should talk a little bit about the the unconscious. I'm I, I told you before I'm sitting here in the in the basement of the Hegel House. Above is the the exhibition on Hegel's life, and on the next floor is a kind of they, they call it escape room uh, room on the phenomenology of spirit, including a sleeping Hegel. And and you once it reminds me you once you once compared the house of Norman Bates from Psycho with Freud's model of the psyche on the ground floor. Yeah, yeah. The ego on the upper floor, the mother, a small authority, super ego, and in the basement where I'm sitting, the unconscious and repressed. So you are not only one of the most important philosophers of our time, but you are also a skilled psychoanalyst. From the not skilled, uh, I mean, look at me. You are, you are, you are one, you are one. Look, the look of, at of the... me and ask yourself a simple <laughs> question: If you were in serious psychic Let's... trouble, would you ever go to me as your analyst? Your answer is yes, then you are. But I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. So this is a kind of psychoanalysis. Yeah, 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 yeah. But from the point of view, from, from the analyst, is there in Hegel the master of reflection, a non reflective, possibly obscene rest? I don't mean in his life, but in his thinking. Or is his attitude to the unconscious, simple, I know you speak a little German, was ich nicht weiß, macht mich nicht heiß? Is he, what's his position to the unconscious? Does the unconscious lie in the future, for example? Is it something that's coming? Or, or is there no, no I, I think that the first thing to take into account for Freud, from Freud, which is more actual than ever today, is that, you know, uh, even when I was young, but already in the 1930s, Wilhelm Reich, and then in the 60s, there was this idea that Iberich, superego, and the sich, the ego, are oppressive forces of society. But then deep in us, there is the id, das es, all these instinctual forces of unconscious, and we should liberate them. Uh, Freud never falls into this. Freud's basic thesis is that there is a strange link between Iberich, superego, and das es. That's why when I use that metaphor, psycho, the mother's house there, And I always say that the crucial moment is when Norman carries mother from Iberich down to... And this is what Trump is doing today. Isn't he carrying... Trump is our Norman Bates, who is carrying <laughs> ideas, American, to the basement of incredible <laughs> vulgarities and so on and so on. So, you know, don't play with... Das es with unbewusste. Unbewusste is not a force of liberation. Horrible things are hidden there. But another thing, when uh, there are great problems here, I try to deal with them in my big fat book of 1,000 pages, less than nothing. Namely how, of course, there is a big difference between Hegel and Freud. For Freud, unconscious is fragmentary, full of überdeterminierungen, partial links, contingent. The Hegelian unconscious is more a formal one. It's the form itself of when you think about something. Hegel even calls this in, uh, uh, in Introduction to Phenolgides Geistes, das Formelle, the formal side 
or even to use the classical Kantian terms, the, the transcendental formal structure. But at one point, and that's another of my thesis, if we read Freudian topic of symptoms and so on through Hegel, it becomes clear something about Hegel himself, that what Hegel, it's crucial that you mention the term reflexivity, self-reflection. I think that, uh, that uh, for Freud, unconscious is not some primitive, deeper, instinctual level. Unconscious is in itself reflexive. What do I mean by this? Let's say an extremely primitive example. Let's say I pretend to love somebody officially, but let's say that I make some Fellleistungen or sleep, uh, 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 slips of tongue where the opposite desire explodes that I really, very primitive example, hate this person. Isn't it that through these symptoms, I reflectively mark, inscribe my true position. In this sense, for me, symptoms are moments of reflection. You think you are fascinated by that person? No. Uh, a symptom reflexively describes or inscribes, renders visible your true position. So I think that it's a crazy thesis. I know I would have to develop it. That uh, what, what Freud calls das Unbewusste is, in a way, a form is uh, very close to what Hegel calls Selbstbewusstsein. For Hegel, Selbstbewusstsein is not Erfahrung. Selbstbewusstsein is a purely formal, reflexive moment. That's why I'm sorry to bore some of my friends who are listening to us now, but... <laughs> I like these examples of jokes and so on, which I repeated at least 10 times, even in my printed work, which give us a hint of reflexivity. You know, that eternal joke, Mike, I'm embarrassed to mention it from, from, uh, 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 from Ninochka, where a guy comes to a restaurant and says, give me coffee, uh, give me coffee, uh, give me coffee, but without cream, please. And the waiter tells him, sorry, we have no cream, we have only milk, so I can only give you coffee without milk. You know, this is what Hegel meant by bestimmte negation, determinant negation. And this coffee, milk is here like the unconscious. Consciously, we have three types of the same coffee. If you have plain coffee, coffee without milk and coffee without cream, they are all materially the same. The same shitty black coffee. But it's not the same thing for Hegel to have plain coffee, coffee without milk or coffee without cream. And unconscious is something like this, this virtual level, the without, which echoes in what you think. When you think explicitly, you see just coffee. Yeah, but Hegel would have said, what is negated with this coffee? Is it coffee without milk? Is it coffee without cream? And this is my reading of the Freudian unconscious. It's not some substantial, deep psychic reality with where you are bodily engaged. It's a purely virtual entity. So again, sorry, I was waiting. I was waiting for that example with, with cream. 
and 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 the coffee. Did I interrupt you? Do you want to? Finish? No, no, no. You should yeah. stop me. Just, you know what you should say. Uh, sometimes I try. Sometimes not. Sorry, just I can't remember. When you were young, were you still reading Karl May, Vinetu, and so on? Yeah. No, or you are already the younger I did, generation. I did, yes, I did. Yeah. Do you remember, we all laughed at it, how Vinetu says in this Karl Marx, German, Indian, how ich habe gesprochen, I've spoken. No, I yeah. should maybe follow yeah. Vinetu a little bit more here. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Back to back to my questions. You claim in yeah. all your previous books on Hegel, we talked about it, that the updating of Hegel must be done through Lacan. But Lacan visited the famous lectures on the phenomenology of spirit that Russian philosopher Alexandre Kozhev gave in the 1930s in Paris. Kozhev's version of the post-histoire is seldom mentioned in your reading of Hegel. Why is that? Do you have a problem with Kojev? You never mentioned absolutely, Abso absolutely. I think right. he's another of those who was looking for in present society for a model of finally realizing what Hegel wanted. First, it was for him, as we know, even Soviet Union. At some point, for Kojev, he thought that Soviet Union is absolute knowledge embodied in Stalin and so on. You know that there are proofs that Kozhev was in the late 40s, early 50s, a Soviet agent even. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not a joke, this. It's not a joke. <laughs> then, then at the end, you know where he moved. Then it was European Union. And at the end, that's more intelligent. Kozhev visited Japan and thought that that... Uh, Uh, that uh, prosperity of Japan with their culture of irony, details, tender dealing with details and so on, that this is Hegel realized today. But we don't, I don't have time to go into it now. What I want just to say is that uh, I think that uh, he, Kozhev, provides a certain reading of Hegel, which is so much focused on that chapter on uh, uh, Herrschaft und Knechtschaft, domination and servitude, that it simply doesn't work like that. I am not against generally such particular readings. I think all great readings are particular. In the sense that you have to take a risk and say, this is the key. For example, I agree with those who claim that the key to entire Hegel's logic is those chapters at the beginning of book two on three types of reflection, positive reflection, external reflection, determinate reflection. That's the key. That's the model of it all. All I'm saying is that <coughs> we don't have time to go into it now in detail, but that Hegel was not in this... Sorry, anything wrong? No. Um, my battery went out here, so I... Ask him to... Ah, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, all I want to say is that, the, yeah, yeah, is that Hegel was far from such a simple assertion of the, the servant, Knecht, as the true agent of liberation and so on and so on. No, 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 it's, it's, much, it's much more complex. At the end, the servant also loses and so on and so on. Mm. I think that the way to recapture the liberating potential that, that one should see in Hegel is there are points, I wonder if you would agree, where Hegel 
And that's for me the only way to criticize Hegel. Not modern things are going on that Hegel couldn't have breasts, but there are interesting points where Hegel himself is not Hegelian enough. And one thing I rely here on the book of my friend Frank Ruda on the notion of rebel, pebble in Hegel, where I simplify his reading very much. Hegel sees the necessity of pebble, rebel. How? A social structure is never organically closed. It's never that every group has its proper post. A social edifice always necessarily produces, especially modern capitalist societies, a class of no class, or as Vacanciere put it in French, la part du non part, a part which is not part doesn't fit as a part. So, but what Hegel doesn't say, and it's so clear to me that he should have said, is that Pöbel, rebel, precisely as such, with no determined place where it could be at home, as it were, in social edifice, stands for the universality. Because what Hegel, and he is afraid to say this, that precisely those with no proper particular place in social edifice, embody the universality of being human. Marx saw this, tried to recapture this in his notion of working class. Working class is, as he puts it, a class of no class. They stand for universality of human being, but if we have anything to learn from the last decades, is that it's no longer, at least not the traditional working class. Today we have refugees, all other so I think against the traditional notion of class, we should rehabilitate Hegel's notion of purple, of uh-huh. rebel. So here again, but there are other, don't you agree, points where Hegel is not Hegelian enough. For example, I was always fascinated by Kant, where he says that why is the most beautiful definition of being human of Kant, you must know him from his short text on education, pedagogic, where Kant says that uh, human, humans are animals, human is an animal who needs a master. But then he goes in why? He says, uh, because other animals have some kind of instinctual orientation how to behave, how to uh, breed, eat, and so on. But humans have something that Kant calls an original, I forgot the German term, wilderness, Uh tendency to excess, and so on. And now I come to the crucial point. This excess is no longer nature, it's unnatural, but it's not yet culture. So human culture is developed not to discipline nature, to make our natural habits more cultivated, but to deal with this excess of wilderness. That Kant almost is tempted to call it the nominal freedom. And now I come to the crucial point. One of my favorite Hegel's, I read about it, wrote about it, sorry, is, you know, at the beginning of the third part of uh, Hegel's encyclopedia, when Hegel deals with madness, he's better than Foucault there. He says that the first step for an animal to become human is madness. Madness means you lose your roots in natural habits. It's this disconnection. 
And then Hegel says that the entire human building, education, self-formation, is a struggle with this excess of madness. Hegel says explicitly, it doesn't mean we all have to be mad, but all our culture, culture, is a struggle against the potential threat of madness. Why does like, 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 uh, apply this to sexuality? Yeah. No. I think with sexuality, it's the same. Okay, it's not just we have animal couplings and then coupling uh, for breeding and so on. And then we humans say, if I want to seduce a woman, I will not be like a primitive ape, just knock her on her head and rape her. I write poems, seduce her and so on. No, no, no. What has to be disciplined is uh, this deadly person, like Tristan und Isolde ready to go to the end. This deadly passion, which is not yet culture, but no longer natural nature. Hegel makes a mistake here, I think. So there are some points where, and that's so thrilling to read Hegel. Again, an imminent critique, where Hegel is not Hegelian enough. I just wanted to say the magic sentence. Vinetu had gesprochen, but you stopped. This brings me back to, to really brings me back to Kozhev. I wanted to ask you because it is always said that he never wrote a book himself. Almost, uh, uh, almost all of his writings are transcribed from his students, including the famous introduction. Did you know that there is a book manuscript of Kozhev written long after the lectures that deals with the end of history again? George Bataille kept it. Now it's in the National Library in Paris. Have you heard about this? Is it already? Because yes, because I even spoke I think with that a guy. I forgot his name. There is a French guy. Boris Kreuz. Boris Kreuz found out all this. And, and yeah. probably be, uh, he's the only one who read the Russian manuscript. And Freud and Heidegger play an important role in this reconception of Kozhev's later version of the end of history, especially Freud, which is interesting because hmm. for Kozhev in the 20th century, and I think that's, that's your point, in the 20th century, the animal side of man, the unconscious, shows itself again, the rebel part, as you, as you yeah. said, due to the consumer society, and for him, only the philosopher, what was new for me, is capable <laughs> of living after the end of history, not all of us, uh, and the other insight, which is probably less astonishing, is that the end of history, we only come with communism. And not with civil societies. It would be Hegel's version of Fukuyama's model. Mm -hmm. We talked about that before. Yeah, yeah. Of a worldwide liberal democracy combined with global capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Surely you should like this this new version. No, no, no. I, I only know. Yeah, I only know that there was another manuscript already published some 20 years ago, which deals with Kozhev uh, uh, reads Hegel's Rechtsphilosophy, Philosophy of State, and I'm much closer to this Kozhev, not that early pseudo-Marxist liberating Kozhev, but, you know, the problem for me is this one, paradoxically, and I think with virus, global warmings, and all these threats are approaching it. Now I'm becoming an old Hegelian pessimist. Yes, there will be communists, communism, but it can also be a very dystopian communism. You know, what kind of, I think that, now I will say something horrible. Everybody says, oh, capitalism only uses the COVID crisis to get even more efficient. I say, wait a little bit, we are not yet there. First, we didn't even master COVID, it's still exploding. After COVID, it will be global warming, whatever. So there will have to be some kind of communism, but it can also be a Chinese style or even another style of very 
oppressive communism. So when I had a debate uh, with some conservative guy, but we are friends, called Tyler Cohen in Bergen, I defined myself as a moderately conservative communist. (laughs) I really think that intelligent communists uh, never accepted this simple, liberal, anarchic, freedom-loving, and so on and so on. My Hegelian formula for today, for example, would you agree or not, is we need more efremdung, more alienation. I am sick and tired of this multicultural liberal formula, understand the other, try to get close to him. No, this is a horrible vision. Even Sloterdijk, another of mine, not exactly communist friend, pointed this out, that for him, we need new distance today. My ideal is not to know all other cultures. My idea is to live in a big apartment block. Across the hall, it's an Algerian, then it's a Chinese, Latino American, South African, whatever you want, an Arab, a Jew, and so on. And I just want to politely, not to them, we politely ignore each other. Maybe, maybe I become friends with some of them, maybe not. I don't like this superego pressure. You have to understand all culture. Why? How can I understand other culture where we probably don't understand even our own culture? And here, here I would like to apply Walter Benjamin's uh, ideas. Everybody quotes it that, you know, a work of art is like a film for which we don't yet have the developer, and it will be possible to read it properly even in a later epoch. I think the same holds even geographically. Uh, uh, all writers who wanted to understand some country, even if it's their own country, have had to move abroad. Joyce had to live in Trieste to do Ulysses and so on and so on. So I believe in distance. I believe that today we can understand Shakespeare better than Shakespeare understood uh, himself. I believe in Verspätung here. Truth comes, uh, truth comes uh, uh, too late. Sorry, have a problem. Good. Uh, I agree. I totally agree to what you said. Let's come maybe to your to your current book, Hegel in a in a wired brain. Have it here. <laughs> To the audience, because they can buy and, and read you know that so? book. I think, in that, I think in that book you turn the tables of all anniversaries. The question, is Hegel still useful today? Into what we talked about, how does our time look in the eyes of Hegel? At one Do point, you know whom I quote implicitly here? No. Adorno. He uh, said at the beginning of his dry uh, three essays on Hegel, uh, okay. polemics against Benedetto Croce, who wrote a book what is alive and what is dead in Hegel. He says, no, the question is the other way around. What is our time in Hegel? Sorry. Yeah. Yes. And at one point, um, you emphasize that the book is neither about Hegel nor about the wired brain. Can you briefly say what, what the book is about? Is the mind a digital machine or can it be replaced by it? I know it's a bit more complicated, but what is yeah, it's more, I try to complicate things. No, first, let me say, yes, it's not about... Kegel, it's not uh, about the wire brain, but it is. I try to imagine how the phenomenon of wire brain, I don't go into technical details about it. Is it possible? To what extent it's possible? Many things are already possible there. It's not as utopian as you may think. 
how I try to imagine precisely because it would have been a total shock to Hegel. Hegel couldn't imagine something like this. How would he have reacted to it? And my idea is that, of course, Hegel would have focused on the fact of what happens with subjectivity, self, uh, self-reflexivität and so on here. So on the one hand, I do point out the dangers of it. But nonetheless, the dangers in the sense that, my God, if a machine can read your mind, literally, you directly communicate with the machine. Like you think about something, the machine reads it. Then this opens up a wholly new perspective of so- perspectives of social control. And to give you an example, I read, I was so glad, in China, in some elementary schools, they're already doing it at a primitive level. All pupils have to wear a kind of a metal ring which detects their brain activity. It's still very primitive, but that's so that the teacher doesn't have to control the pupils. If the pupils are not attentive, listening to what the teacher is saying, his computer makes a click, they measure their brain activity and so on. But what I want to say is this. The first question is, what gets lost here? Let's say, sorry for the vulgarity, let's say that you were to be a woman, sorry for heterosexism, and we were to flirt. Can you imagine what would have happened to our love life without all the process of flirting and so on. No poetry, no mistakes. And the whole charm of love is that I try to say something in seduction, I do something else through all these misunderstandings in function, but it would just have meant I look at the woman, she reads my mind, I read her mind. I want to ask you, yes, okay, and that's it. It's horrible because I claim, and that I read Hegel, I quote him about the fall and so on, precisely as fallen beings where language always fails us. This is what opens all the spirituality. That's why I find extremely stupid what Elon Musk is now promoting. I read an interview with him a month ago where he said, 10 years from now, we will no longer use language. We will be directly communicating with each other. So the first question I try to answer in the book is, what does this mean for our notion of spirituality? Do we survive as subjects? Okay, it's a horrible position. Then, nonetheless, I try to outline a dimension which will escape this whatever you call it, neural network, which will be able to read my mind. My idea is, A, (coughs) sorry, pure form of subjectivity, (coughs) this Cartesian cogito, what Kant would have called subject of transcendental apperception, which, and Lacan always emphasizes this, should not be confused by the wealth of my inner life. I cannot be reduced to my inner life. For Kant already, my inner life is pathological, contingent. There is pure form. On the other hand, I try to demonstrate the Freudian unconscious. Remember that my boring, always repeated example, coffee without milk. I spoke with many computer programmers, and they agree with me, at least those with whom I spoke, that this negative dimension of something that is only virtually present, The machine will not be able to read it. It will 
elute the machine. So I nonetheless insist that with all the possible horrors, total control, and so on and so on, this basic constellation of a pure subject whose other side is das Unbewusste, the unconscious, will escape this, uh, the universe of wired uh, brain. But again, uh, apart from this, I do many other things. I enjoyed writing that book very much. For example, before the long last chapter, I tried to imagine, I call it a literary fantasy. My hero is not James Boyce, Joyce, of writers of the 20th century. He's pretentious, boring. I think Finnegan's Wake is the most arrogant book. I have almost <laughs> a Goebbels reaction to Finnegan's Wake. It would be publicly burned. <laughs> but uh, Samuel Beckett, unnameable, you know, who is he, the, the, the speaker is not even a human being. It's a kind of a strange partial object, the one who speaks there. No, and I think that this is an image of a wired brain, how our subjectivity will look in wired brain. Read, uh, read, uh, uh, read uh, uh, again Beckett's Unnameable, his ultimate novel. Then I do another thing. I uh, go into Soviet Union, using the work of, you mentioned him, Boris Groys and so on, how all these digital tech-gnostic dreams of today, shared thought, one big collective self-awareness, well, already part of the, the radical form of Bolshevism in the 1920s, you know. And here I come to another of my favorite writings. Uh, there are three in the 20th century, if you ask me. Uh, uh, Beckett. Andrei Platonov and Franz Kafka, of course, no? And Platonov saw the deadlock of this tech Gnosticism. So uh, it's not as confused a book as some people who criticize me think. No, first I describe wired brain, what will be missing in it, then I go through history, then I cover the, let's call it, uh, theological dimension of it, because advocates of uh, the wired brain clearly think that this will be a new form of collective divinity. It will not. I try to prove this through Hegel. Then I go through the unconscious, and finally, what will survive the wired brain. But now... Hegel in the wired brain... Let me interrupt you at this point. Hegel in the wired brain ends with the final question. So our excursion on the end of history was not in vain, whether the singularity that would emerge from our brains linked yeah. together and wired to the world would be the true end of history, you wrote. Uh, for all of, for all who have not yet read the book and also a little bit for me, there I said, can you roughly explain what you mean by singularity, a kind of code word or leitmotif of the book, and then please answer the question why singularity is not the true end of history. First, what is it and why is it not the end of history? First, uh, uh, what I mean by singularity is a term uh, precisely from those neo-gnostic interpretations of the wired brain, where it's not just a technical thesis that our brains will be directly connected, communicating through the machine, but they claim that through this direct communication between all our brains, a singularity with emerge, singularity in the sense of a new collective self-awareness, and they use directly theological ter terms. 
it will I no longer will be aware of myself as a single individual. I will just be a moment in the divine God's self-awareness. I like this thesis in the sense that this God is not the old God of transcendence. This God will be our own technological product through the gigantic digital machinery. Again, a new form of collective awareness will emerge. And you know what is so interesting? That some reactions to COVID also use this notion. They claim that we are fucked up. It looks bad for us in reality, but maybe we should all escape into this type of virtual existence and so on. Like physically, we will be more isolated than ever. No, but if we move into this virtual dimension of participating in a, some collective self-awareness, it will be okay. The reason I think this will not work is that you know that Things with the end of history are much more paradoxical as it may appear. You know this. Because, uh, look, we are hearing this story about the end of history from Fukuyama onwards. But then where we are now, we are at the end of history, which, if I may put it so, which never ends. It just drags on. You know, so the end of history, it's not now we are there. It's we wait something to happen, nothing happens, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, we are, so the end of history is paradoxically one big expectation that something tremendous will happen, which never happens. So I think that, that, uh, that precisely because of the reasons that I enumerated and then some others, like... Uh, Global, from global warming to technological dangers, viruses, and so on, radical changes are ahead. The thesis of end of history, even in its pessimist version, like uh, we will all be some techno-automata, uh, just cops in the machinery of a global digital uh, uh, computer, are way too optimistic. I think that we should become aware that we live already now in a time of great, incredible change. That would have interested Hegel. For example, some leftists who claim, oh, uh, capitalism won, just the richer are getting richer. And it's interesting. I know Elon Musk, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. Now, I just read that Jeff Bezos this week reached 200 billions, his wealth. Yes. But on the other hand, you know what my friend Varoufakis told me this. You know what's so interesting? You remember what is happening now if you follow economic news. The more unemployment grows and economic crisis is exploding, the better the stock market is doing. And according to Varoufakis, this means that we are already out of the classical capitalism where stock markets reflected profit rate and so on and so on. Financial capital is now moving in its own dimension, uncoupled from the normal, basic, material, whatever, capitalist reproduction. And this has consequences, maybe even good ones. You know which company interests me now immensely? Netflix. Look, 
they are immensely successful getting more and more uh, uh, people uh, to watch them. But you know, they are losing money all the time. And the way they produce movies, to that, what was the, I forgot the title, the big gangster movie by Scorsese, they put 300, uh, the Irishman or what, I forgot, they put 300 millions into it, they knew they will never get the money. It's something very strange and new that is emerging in our economy already. And not to mention this, uh, uh, what Trump means as a phenomenon. I think we haven't yet fully grasped what Trump means. By Trump, I mean this open dismantling of truth and rehabilitation of direct, uh, of direct obscenity. I read a wonderful analysis of Trump. Hegel would have been interested in it as a... You know, usually we assume, we accuse Trump of lying. Oh, that guy's twisting data. You know, all these CNN liberal sites where they enumerate. This week, Trump said 150 lies and so on. No. But I read an analysis which puts, no, the true paradox of Trump is not that he lies. All politicians do, more or less. But that he says the truth where the truth should be embarrassing for him, and you would never expect him to tell the truth. For example, you know when he tried to 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 uh, to give less money to post service to make more difficult postal voting, so that Democrats will get less votes. Critics accuse him that he is doing this so that Democrats will get less votes. You know what he said? Yes, of course, that's why I'm doing it. You know, there is something much more horrible in this. Not just lying, but saying the truth shamelessly when the truth should be horrifying for you. That would, Hegel would have added this uh, reversal. So I think, what more do you want? We live today in a time which is extremely dangerous ecologically, which uh, economically, and Hegel would have detected it, uh, signi- uh, 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 enacts a significant change of it's no longer the old capitalism, you know, you invest, you profit, and so on. It's no longer pro- about profiting in that way. Financial capital has its own dynamic. It's a tremendous psychological crisis, new forms of violence, and so on, and so on. We live in a crazy world. I told you another another theme. I told you that um, in the conception of the museum here, there's an escape room and there's a sleep in Hegel. So I think let's let's wake him a little bit up. So because there's a rumor, I read that at an early stage you should be commissioned to redesign the Hegel House. I don't know if you have ever been asked, but very I'm roughly, a dirty old man. You know, the first very, very roughly. Uh, yeah, and what, what I would have have a bedroom and then yes. offered to couples. They can fuck the Hegelian way, how should I put it there? Exactly. Is this your concept of a Hegel museum? Would that look like this? You yes, know, he's one of the no, founding fathers you of the museum. You know what's interesting? If I, you know this question that Derrida was asked famously? If he were to meet Hegel in a documentary on Derrida, what would he have asked Hegel? And Derrida's answer was sex life. What was Hegel's <laughs> sex life? I am not. From what I can gather, he was an ordinary conservative, a little bit corrupt, 
guy. Like, he had a wife, he cheated with some household lady. When she got pregnant, he escaped and so on. Then he married a younger, nothing special there. What I would have asked him is his true political beliefs. He must have known that something horrible is approaching, that his concept of uh, modern state, the way he describes it in Rex philosophy, no longer holds disintegrated. What were his fears, his dreams there? I think he was not simply a conservative, or if he was, conservatives, when something new is emerging, often see more. My big example here is sound cinema. You know that it's precisely those who resisted sound movies, like Russians, Eisenstein and so on, and Charlie Chaplin. He used 10 years to accept full speaking movie. The Great Dictator is his first full speaking movie. You have before movies with some background sound, but not and us. But they saw much better what is new in the sound movie. Because the realistic option, opinion, was that with sound movies, they will become more realistic. People will also speak. You will see them speaking. It's more a production of real life. Intelligent directors like Fritz Lang, Dr. Mabuse, Testament, and so on, saw that with sound movies, voice will gain autonomy. It will become a free-floating voice haunting you and so on. It will be further denaturalization. And I think that uh, something like this Hegel would be able to detect in what is going on today. How all those media who apparently made our interaction more direct, like Zooming and so on, are further denaturalizing us. The problem is not that they are alienated. That would be my paradox. The problem is that our societies are becoming too much, too non-alienated. Today, alienation is a solution, a proper distance. Finally, finally uh, a more private question, which has been on my mind for a long time. Years ago, I read in an interview that you gave to a German philosophical magazine that you destroyed all your family photos or yes. your family photo albums. Is that true? And for Hegel, Absolutely of course, true. Uh, I have no for Hegel, of course, history rages and destroys everything, an operation which he calls sublation, but at the same time, everything is kept, which is also a meaning of the German word. It should be kept in my, in my books. I'm an instrument for writing my books. I don't exist. I don't deserve to exist outside it. I, I That's think true. That, the story is true. Yeah, the you story. know why? But I will tell you why. Now, this may sound paradoxical with all the stuff I wrote about uh, psychoanalysis, about psychoanalysis, but if I hate something, it's to analyze myself. I'm deeply convinced that if you look deep into yourself, or I deep into myself, you just discover some dirty private secrets, some shit, we all have dirty dreams and so on. It doesn't interest me. I am in my books. I am an instrument for writing books. And I, I hate this idea that I express myself in my books. No, it's the other way around. My books, unfortunately, need me to be written and have to tolerate my idiosyncrasies and so on and so on. And Hegel was, I think, a little bit this type of a guy, you know, 
you can see that he knew how to enjoy private life and so on, but his books were, or his theory, although there is another paradox, and I would, I would ask my friends to, those who are listening to us, to think about it. Again, Frank Ruda and Rebecca Comey in their book, Death on Hegel, notice this. It's such a simple observation, but true. If we discard Hegel's early system der Sittlichkeit, he was not yet Hegel there. You know that Hegel basically wrote just two books, Phenomenology and uh, Logic. All other stuff are, okay, he wrote, of course, two more, Rechtsphilosophie and Encyclopedia. But these are not books in the sense of texts which recapture a living thought. These are university manuals written in a legal way in paragraphs and so on. They are necessary, but if you want uh, really, in other words, sorry, uh, when Hegel wrote Encyclopedia and uh, Rechtsphilosophie, he just recapitulated his lectures. He wasn't creative there. He already knew what he wants to say. But, and it, so it's just the two books, phenomenology and logic. And I think the big enigma, like in communism, are you Trotskyist or Stalinist here? It is, are you logic or phenomenology? Are you a historicist who thinks that logic is just an abstract a conceptual scheme, but real life is in the historical material of phenomenology or the other way around, time for logic, of course. But maybe we should end our talk with a, with a joke because most of your jokes, most of the jokes that you mention in your books are used to illustrate Philosophical ideas of Hegel. The collection of your best but, jokes sorry, is available at Surkamp. Hegel also uses much more, uh, 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 even obscene jokes than one thinks. So I'm a Hegel. Tell me one. Tell me one. Tell, it's tell not me a one. Joke, but just uh, let's say it's not a joke. But in, in phenomenology, this guys, that's when he uses to explain their guys this and Knochen penis as the organ of highest and lowest, urination and insemination. And you know that people don't know, but he applies the same to mouth. He says that mouth is for the lowest eating and for the highest speaking and so on, you know. The, don't know, Hegel was, you know, that's the bad thing I can say about Martin Heidegger. I spoke with fanatical Heideggerians to whom who knew everything, all the same, all the notebooks and so on. And I asked them, is there in entire Heidegger one, only one joke? They couldn't remember it. The only joke I know is in a letter to that guy, Medard Boss, a psychiatrist friend, uh, Lacan, it's not a great joke, but at least an ironic remark. No, I'm sorry, Heidegger reports after meeting Lacan, that Lacan seems to him a psychiatrist who is himself in need of a psychiatrist. Okay, it's not a bad show, but the only point where Heidegger comes this close, close to a close to a joke, you know. Yeah, he was he was not such a funny guy. He was not such a funny guy, Heidegger. No, but, the but I really think that my favorite jokes, if you ask me, I use them in my old books. I hope people don't know them. Are those? <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, 
self-reflexive jokes, they are properly Hegelian jokes, where first you speak about something for a cer- from a certain position, and then this position, which appears external, this position of enunciation, let's call it, falls itself into the joke. You know, this is the Hegelian moment of reflexivity. For example, I have a whole <coughs> sorry, series of them. If I may quickly to conclude, repeat one, you must know it. It's from my youth, the era of, uh, of uh, who were there? Brezhnev, Nixon, and Honecker. No? Let's say. Okay. It's, they confront God. First, uh, uh, Nixon asks God, tell me, dear God, what will become of the United States 50 years from now? God tells him, sorry, United States will be a Soviet Republic. Uh, Nixon turns around and starts to cry. Then Brezhnev, oh, tell me, God, what will become of the Soviet Union? Glad. God says, oh, it will be a Chinese province. No. Brezhnev turns around and starts to cry. Then Honecker asks, and what will become with my beautiful German Democratic Republic? You can guess the answer. God turns around and starts to cry. You know, <laughs> But this is not a Hegelian joke. No. I just want one of your Hegelian jokes, because the collection of your best jokes published at Zurkam uh, has a title, Treffen sich zwei Hegelianer. Yes. Three, three jokes where I forgot which, I think they had something to do with the Jews and Palestinians, but considered too rough. But uh, that, that book wasn't even done with me. It was too much, uh, by me, it was uh, two Norwegian guys did it. It was too much a commercial exploitation, if you ask. <laughs> I think so. Good that you mentioned that. But there's no Hegelian joke, not, not one, on Hegel. Two Hegelians are meeting, something like that. I tried to invent it. You caught me here. Okay, my usual excuse would have been that dialectic itself is comical in its reversals. Brecht said this. In a famous passage, Brecht says that there is something imminently comical in a Hegelian process. But come to think, yes, apart from some comical remarks which appear ironic or comical or whatever. Yes, Hegel doesn't have many explicit jokes, but I still think that he comes closest to something like there is a joke in Hegelian dialectical reversals themselves, this fundamental reversal where you yourself are already part of the series on which you are talking. There is a, there is a comical uh, uh, denial, uh, uh, reversal in it. And you know what I especially like? Hegel would have loved this. I don't know if I even have this joke in the book, because I learned there is another version. You know, in old communist Yugoslavia, we had many political jokes, and now they disappear. This is a tragedy for me. One was that a stupid Yugoslav politician visits Germany and he travels on a train near Baden-Baden and asks his guide, what's the name of this city? Everybody in Germany must know this joke. The guy tells him Baden-Baden and the politician says, I'm not stupid, you don't have to tell me twice, you know. 
But you know what's so beautiful? You have another version of these jokes where the politician is stupid in another way. The politician tells, uh, no, the guy, they, he talks with another politician and asks him, uh, where do you come from? And the politician German says, from Baden-Baden. And the politician Serb from Belgrade thinks that you have to say it twice and say, I come from Belgrade, Belgrade, and so on. So I like, there is nothing that I like more than this, that, and this is very Hegelian moment. You think, you see the contingency of jokes, you know? You think it's one formula, no, there is another way to read a joke, which is why the most Hegelian jokes are those. In Freud, you find some of them, this doppelganger, two levels jokes. You think it's already the final punchline, then another reversal comes, you know. If Hegel were to do jokes, they would have been this. Slavo, I have no more questions. Maybe one, one final question. Maybe you want to add something to our conversation, but the final question would, of course, be in this trial, guilty or not guilty of being Hegelian? What do you say? Oh, I would say guilty with pleasure. Guilty. Because Me too. Guilty, Me too. In, guilty, but guilty in the sense of guilty for the eyes of establishment, but I proudly, you know, this heroic gesture of political prisoners, you tear your shirt apart, shoot me. I admit I'm guilty. <laughs> That would be my answer to being guilty. I think perfect ending. What do you think? Thanks very much. I appreciate Thank you very much. very much. It was Good a time. pleasure. And I'm just sorry I cannot be with you there. I am generally, it's very atypical. We Slovenes are a normal alcoholic nation. Maybe, maybe in my I life did I, get, did I get drunk. But I would like for Hegel wine, it's an exception. Okay. Is okay, it a white a wine or a, or a dark wine? No, it's wine? red. It's, it's a, red. It's a, it's a it's dark red, red okay, wine. Okay, because it's, I, it's, a, it's a strong you know, one. And maybe, know, maybe, maybe I... To finish maybe, in a very dirty way, I am for red wine against white wine. You know, Italians have a wonderful proverb. I hope it's not too obscene. Vino bianco cazzo stanco, white wine penis limp, vino rosso, rosso cazzo grosso, red wine big penis, you know. This is my ideological guideline here. Thanks very much. It was a Thank pleasure. you very much. Good ending. Thank you. Bye, Slava. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I dropped out. Bye-bye.